In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Bravo Docket. We're going to pick up where we left off, which is talking about Tom Girardi's competency hearing. We're talking about the competing experts, so the defense's side and the government's side, and what those experts found when they analyzed Tom. We'll dive right in in a second, but before that, I want to remind everyone that we are hosting a get-together the weekend of BravoCon in Las Vegas. I'll put the Eventbrite link in the episode description again. That's going to be Saturday, November 4th. It's an informal event, just a get-together where we can say hello, hang out with everyone. If you can register in the Eventbrite link, that would be great, just so we can get an accurate headcount. You do not need a ticket to attend. You do not need to register to attend. It's just for our own benefit. But yeah, I'll put that again in the episode description. All right, let's dive in. After the defense expert and the prosecution experts evaluated Tom and put their findings into a report, both sides started challenging the evidence used by the experts as well as the opponent's experts themselves. And this is very common in all litigation. You hire experts, they look at the evidence, they come up with a report, you submit it, and the other side challenges it, whether that's in a criminal case or a civil case, very common battle of the experts. So one of the experts the government wanted to keep out was a defense expert that was a criminal defense attorney. I thought this was interesting because I had never heard of this being used before in a competency hearing, but she's a practicing criminal defense attorney, but not counsel of record for Girardi. And Girardi and his counsel wanted to get the following expert opinions from this criminal defense attorney. And what were those, Susie? The responsibilities of defense counsel with respect to effectively advising and preparing a client her personal observations of defendant during meetings she attended with defense counsel, and how defendant's perceived impairments would affect his counsel's ability to prepare defendant's case. (laughs) The government's response is, as discussed below, this expert's opinions are irrelevant, unreliable, and a waste of time, period. That's quoted directly from the government's motion. I kind of get where they're coming from there, because it's not as if the court and the clerks don't understand the basic importance of a defendant being able to consult with their attorney. And this person isn't a psychological expert or psychiatric expert. 
Yeah. Well, what the defense was trying to do is get at that factor, like the two factors that we discussed at the beginning for finding that someone is incompetent. They were trying to get at the one that the defendant is incapable of providing information to help the defense counsel with their defense. That's what they were trying to get at. But I think the the court ended up saying, no, this expert can't testify and kicked it out and said, you guys should be putting forth that evidence. Like if, if you're finding that it's going to be difficult to represent Tom because he's incompetent, why don't you guys put that in your motion? <laughs> like say it, you don't yeah. need someone else to say it for you. You can yeah. just say, you know, it's hard to talk to him. Make the argument yourself. You don't need a random third party attorney to do that for you. Yeah. So the court excluded that expert from testifying. I mean, the thing I don't understand, though, is that the... No, I guess I do understand it. Like, everything is going before the judge, so she's seeing all these things and making orders on it, and she's the one who determines whether or not he's competent, so she's already seen it. But, I mean, that happens all the time in cases, even before the trial, where they see something, and there's an objection, and they have to go, oh, you have to get that out of your brain. You can't think about that piece of evidence, even though you just saw it. So it's a weird procedural problem. Judges become very good doing that. Also, the defense got what they wanted because the judge had to read the proffered mm-hmm. evidence in order to exclude it. So you're right, it's in the judge's brain, but it's not in the record as supporting the defense's side. And I mean, I agree with the judge. I, the judge thing I know. I already knew yeah. this. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm sure the judge won't consider it. Yeah. She's professional and amazing and wonderful, but I don't like I I don't see how juries can do it. Or the rules back there that's like, oh, no, the judge said we weren't allowed to consider that. You know there's someone that's going to be like, but we heard the testimony that blah, 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 and have it affect their decision. Yeah. You just know it. Well, so. that's why you've got when you're picking a jury, you have to figure out who isn't afraid to state their opinion, who isn't afraid to take a contrary opinion to another juror. Because a lot of jurors don't want to speak up. They don't want to talk. A lot of potential jurors don't want to reveal anything unless they think it's going to help them get off the jury. But finding that person who will be, especially on the defense side in a civil trial, who will be a stickler for the rules, and when someone does try to bring that up, say, no, we're not allowed to consider that, that's key to finding a good jury, but it's so hard to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then something else. So I attended one of the hearings, and another issue that I picked up on is that Tom's counsel had their experts, or at least one, review additional materials after she submitted her expert report. And so her testimony at the hearing could only be within the confines of her report, unless they gave her like a hypothetical or asked her a question outside of that, and she had independent knowledge and experience in order to answer it. But she couldn't go beyond the contours of her expert report. However, the counsel representing Tom gave her additional materials to analyze before her testimony, And from what I gather, the government kept asking them for her supplemental report, like supplemented. If you looked at these additional things, it should be in your report. Give us a supplement. And Tom's counsel refused. And then so became an issue at the hearing where she would go beyond the confines of her report and talk about something she saw after. And then they'd battle it out between the attorneys. And the judge was like, no, she, she can't testify to that unless she saw it before or like has her own independent basis of it or like opinion of it. It it was just very interesting. So that was another issue that came up between the parties. And that's important because that's the whole reason the judge is making rulings like that is because it's really unfair to the other side. You're not supposed to be ambushed with anything 
in a hearing. There's specific rules, especially in federal court, when you disclose who your experts are, when you disclose what their opinions are, when you have to produce reports and everything that went into the report. They'll list all of the treatises or journal articles, any physical examinations they did, mental examinations, time that they spent with whoever they were examining, because in this case, it's a psychiatric examination. And then they'll go through everything they base their opinion on. And then that goes to the other side. And like the with other citations side, and the yeah, documents themselves. Yeah. Has the opportunity to look at that and prepare for cross-examination in order to properly use our adversarial system. So for the judge to make those rulings, that makes a lot of sense. If your expert's going to rely on something, it needs to be stated in the report prior to the hearing. And then in early August, both sides submitted their motions summarizing the analysis that was done, the evidence, and making arguments on Tom should or should not be found competent to stand trial. Note again, like I mentioned before, the medical records and medical findings were redacted in those motions, but because the hearings are public, that's how we have information on what the experts that examined him found. Oh, but we'll talk about that later. So, Ceci, I think for our listeners, they'd be really interested. A lot of people have never gone to just observe a court proceeding. Can you talk a little bit about what your experience was like going in to observe this proceeding? Sure. This is the first time I think I've gone to a proceeding that I wasn't somehow involved with. So I've been to ones where my firm has been handling an issue or where I've been in trial, but this is the first time I've just gone as a normal person (laughs) to go watch And I guess I can give like a walkthrough of what's involved. Anyone can go in. So this court, the Central District of California, the downtown location in Los Angeles, allows you to bring in your laptop and cell phone. Not all courts do that. You can have your phone in there. And that's why there has been so much real-time information coming out about this competency hearing. You can't have it inside the courtroom, but you can, you know, just step right outside and send a tweet or make an Instagram post. But I was surprised that there weren't more people there. All you have to do is go on the website, figure out who the judge is, find the courtroom, just walk right in. You have to be respectful and quiet and, again, not be on your phone, not be on your laptop. But it's just free to the public. It's completely open, and I'm shocked more people don't go. Like the trial I had, it was like T.I. is testifying. Why aren't more people here to see this? Or like right now, Katy Perry it's like, why don't more people go and like go see Katy Perry, go see T.I.? My new firm handled a Smokey Robinson trial. It's like I, I saw Smokey Robinson talk about his Motown career. I'm just like shocked that mo- more people don't go. And at first I didn't see Tom because I didn't realize he was blocked by the person, who the examining attorney. And then I like scooted my head over and I was like, oh, my God, he's there. There he is at the end of the table. So, I mean, it is a formal process. These hearings were highly scientific and technical, and I don't know, for those not really familiar with what was going on, maybe not as interesting, I was like taking a million notes. I was just like, oh my God, like, I get it. I had all these neurons firing about what arguments they were trying to make, but everyone told me I went on the most boring day. It can be very interesting. A lot of it is just sitting around and listening to long testimony, especially in these cases the experts wanted to make sure that their credentials were highlighted. So they spent a long time on that. And you know, that's not really the meat of why we're there. We want to hear everything about Tom. So you just kind of have to sit through it and eventually the meat comes out. But yeah, 
I don't yeah, know federal courthouses else. are typically very beautiful. Stunning. They, yeah. The parking is almost always terrible, but the courthouse is typically very beautiful. It is more like going through TSA, typically, to get in. The federal marshals are there, and they are highly trained. The courtrooms in federal court look exactly like courtrooms look on TV, typically. Mm -hmm. They're big, they're fancy, they're expansive. It really brings a lot of gravitas to the proceedings. We've talked a little bit about this before. You can't get video like you do in state court. And also the seating is very uncomfortable. Like old school church wooden pew seating. Okay, back to the motions on competency evidence. So prosecutors, that's the government, in their filing, they talked about the timing of Girardi's alleged cognitive decline and how it's a suspicious escape hatch, which I've already talked about the timeline of that. The fact that there was evidence of a normal routine immediately prior to the allegations shows, quote, an artfully constructed self-serving portrait of a figure purportedly so diminished as to be beyond the legal system's reach, end quote. That was beautifully written. And they summarized how shortly after Girardi's bankruptcy proceedings were initiated in 2020 that Girardi asserted he couldn't take care of himself or his estate. And we talked about that. That's the petition for a conservator. And that they argued, and Bravo Docket fans, you're going to know all about this. Even though Tom's team claims his symptoms started after the 2017 car accident, the infamous one that Erica discussed on Beverly Hills, that evidence shows he was, quote, acutely aware of his outstanding debts leading up to his 2021 conservatorship and was described as being, quote, sharp and cunning by business partners. This is directly from the government's motion. In the years leading up to December 2020, Girardi juggled hundreds of cases at Girardi Keys, made numerous court appearances on complex matters, negotiated millions in loans from litigation lenders, and most importantly, continued to successfully keep his ongoing fraudulent scheme a secret from the public. Defendants' experts completely ignore the context in which defendants' purported redacted arose, that is, only after his legal problems and financial debts were threatening to ruin him. Their failure to redaction is dementia. Yeah. Their failure to address this suspicious timing and the fact that the legal incompetence conveniently provides a way for Girardi to evade accountability is a significant flaw in their analysis. Defendants' experts also ignore the precipitous and thus incredible rate at which, I'm assuming this is redacted, his dementia or cognitive decline developed. Girardi's public interactions both at work and socially do not support his claimed incompetency in 2020 or any steep decline resulting in incompetence today. So I'll just note that one of the differences in how they're arguing this is defense counsel, so Tom's counsel, is trying to argue that there's evidence of his mental decline starting earlier than 2020, so before the timeline that the government is narrowly focused on. And it started even before 2017, and it's just getting worse through now. And the government, like we just read, is really focused on what happened, you know, 2020 to 2023. So to summarize, so his defense attorneys said in filings that the prosecutors are relying on experts who are unqualified. It says that the accusation that Girardi is somehow faking it ignores all of the prior medical and mental health professionals who have diagnosed Mr. Girardi with dementia, and it instead proffers the opinions of their go-to out-of-state experts, Drs. Ryan Darby and Diana Goldstein. So they're like, your experts are trash. So this is how they start out their motion. They say three neurologists, two neuropsychologists, one neuropsychiatrist, multiple lawyers, 
and a legion of friends, family, caregivers all agree, Thomas V. Girardi suffers from dementia and is incompetent to properly assist in his defense. For several years, Girardi's progressive cognitive decline was evident to those around him. Despite his best efforts to mask and compensate for his impairments and empathetic denials that anything was wrong, there's overwhelming evidence that Girardi is cognitively impaired and incapable of caring for himself. His ability to learn and retain new information is practically non-existent. The severe atrophy of Girardi's hippocampi, which is the epicenter of episodic memory, places him in the bottom percentile for his age, and his judgment and ability for rational decision-making is severely impaired. Girardi's frontal lobes, which manage executive functioning, also show significant volume loss. The conclusion that Girardi is incompetent to stand trial is supported by reliable and independent sources, including neuropsychological testing data, brain imaging, and countless observations on numerous occasions in a variety of settings by several credible people. After presenting testimony and evidence from experts, other medical professionals, and lay witnesses, the defense will request that the court issue an order finding Girardi incompetent. I mean, if that's true, doesn't that make Erica look really bad? She was married to him, and I know she supposedly said, oh, I, I tried to get reach out and get help, but I don't know that there's any conclusive evidence of her doing that. And it's just fascinating that, I don't know if fascinating is the right word, but her claiming that his demeanor and everything changed and suddenly he was mean and all this other stuff didn't happen until after the LA Times article came out and the bankruptcy was filed. But like you were saying, she has no reason to out him as incompetent. I would think you would have a responsibility morally to take efforts to do that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but... wouldn't Erica have wanted to get Girardi in a conservatorship and be like, oh, I control all of this now? I mean, I guess she needed him still to bring in money. I don't know. Yeah, it's very complicated or not at all. Who knows? So just to summarize what the defense counsel said, and I'll get into some of the expert testimony later. So again, like I mentioned, they talk about the 2017 car accident. They said that is when they first discovered atrophy in his brain and cognitive decline. Then they said he had a major fall and suffered further decline noticed by his doctors, employees, and friends. There's a third thing that is redacted. Then it talks about his conservatorship where the judge found by clear and convincing evidence that he could not care for himself or his financial affairs. Over his objection, Girardi was placed in an assisted living facility after suffering another fall. Then it talks about how three independent experts find that he is cognitively impaired and not competent to stand trial. And then it summarizes some lay witness testimony or interviews, statements that they provided corroborating that he is in mental decline. So let's talk about the hearings. The prosecution's expert testified that Girardi may be experiencing mild cognitive impairment, but that he appears to be feigning severe symptoms, such as when he denied having a third wife, yet took two calls from her during his exam. So Diana Goldstein of the Isaac Ray Forensic Group LLC testified as the first witness for the government, and this is from a Law 360 article written by Craig Clow. My guy, Craig. I keep running into him. I say hi to him. Law 360 is great. They do such great reporting. And Goldstein said that Girardi displayed 
inconsistent dementia symptoms during her three-day examination, including the phone calls he took from his third wife, reality television star Erica Jane of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And she said, quote, so this is someone who is claiming amnesia dating back to the 1960s, as he would have you believe that we are still in the Vietnam conflict, yet at the same time can name Joe Biden as the president can name the year 2023. He spoke in detail about COVID and how it impacted his practice. Obviously, if he had amnesia during that period, that couldn't happen. Yet he took calls from his wife, Erica, or Miss Jane, I apologize, twice during our examination, one time spontaneously saying, quote, hi, are you going to Spain today? And you could hear her say, yes, I fact-checked. There was indeed a Housewives of Beverly Hills show that was being filmed in Spain. Okay, so amnestic is a selective type of memory dysfunction, whereby okay. recent personal memories cannot be recalled. She said during cross-examination that Girardi appeared to remember people over the several days she met with him and showed signs of, quote, tracking conversations, which she said people with dementia have extreme difficulty doing. Over the three days that I saw him, the conversation built naturally upon itself. He never repeated himself. He never stumbled. He never got off topic. He was tracking perfectly. I think it's interesting that Erica is calling him. Yeah. Then she was cross-examined. It was extensive and lasted a very long time. He questioned her about specific and often highly technical aspects of her report, as well as her more broad assertion that Girardi is experiencing only mild cognitive impairment and is malingering. When Goldstein discussed Girardi's ability to track conversations over the days she met with him, one example she used was that he remembered telling her the day before that he is not a criminal defense attorney, and he said he told her that 15 times already. But the defense counsel suggested she could be misreading things as Girardi never specified if he thought he said it the day prior or seconds earlier. So part of Dr. Goldstein, so this is again the expert that is testifying on behalf of prosecutors, she said that she spent, she billed hours for watching a TV docuseries and a legal drama as part of her evaluation of the now disbarred and indicted plaintiff's attorney's cognitive impairment. That was a very long way of saying Tom's impairment. Neuropsychologist Diana Goldstein said in cross-examination that she watched the Hulu show, The Housewife and the Hustler, as well as the American Greed episode, Lawyers, Lies, and a Housewife, to familiarize herself with the life of Girardi, who was married for two decades to Real Housewives of Beverly Hill star, oh my God, two decades to Real Housewives of Beverly Hill star Erica Jane. Goldstein bills two fifty per hour and is acting as an expert for the attorney general's office. In the cross, the defense pressed Goldstein on evidence that Girardi had a long history of serious memory issues. In one 2019 incident, Girardi showed an assistant at his law firm a photo of himself and his wife, Erica, and asked who the woman in the picture was. At the time, the pair had been married for two decades. I mean, to be fair, what look did Erica have in the picture? So Goldstein asserted the episode was not as clear-cut as it seemed. The assistant reported that when she told Girardi the woman was his wife, he replied, I was kidding. The photo was from an early period in their marriage, long before Erica Girardi became a pop singer and a star of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Erica wasn't wearing any makeup, and this was pre-plastic surgery. And I will say, if you see pictures of Erica pre-plastic surgery, she does look like a different person. Completely different nose. Her yeah. nose is a lot more like mine. Yeah. So Goldstein, so prosecutor's expert, was trying to explain away why maybe Tom didn't recognize his wife in a photo. And she's saying, no, he's not. It's not because of mental decline. It's because she didn't have makeup on and didn't have plastic surgery yet. 
Yeah, the first time actually I saw a picture of Erica with her original nose pre-plastic surgery, I thought she looked really pretty, but I had no idea who it was, to be perfectly honest. So then also on cross-examination, Girardi's lawyer, he pointed out that staff in the dementia care board at his long and his longtime friends had told the expert they believed Girardi truly had dementia. He spends his days carrying a stack of papers around the memory care floor and telling people he is busy with legal cases, despite the fact that his firm is defunct and he has been disbarred. The attorney cross-examining her said, he informed you he's actively working on 30 cases. She responded, he said that. And that was the end of that. Keep that in mind when we talk about the most famous case of avoiding legal consequences or attempting to avoid them by feigning mental issues, because I feel like that's just really on the nose, carrying around legal papers, saying you're working. I mean, I don't know. I just feel like that's really on the nose. I don't know. Anyway, so then there was another expert that testified on behalf of prosecutors, and then it was switched over to the defense's side to put on their experts. And this is when I went to the hearing. And so the first defense expert was Dr. Helena Chang Chu, and she is a chair and professor of neurology at Keck School of Medicine at USC. And she has examined Girardi multiple times. I'm going to read a summary that the defense put together. And it says that she first she first examined Girardi beginning in April 2021 and most recently in May 2023. After reviewing Girardi's medical records, including prior brain scans and ordering additional tests and conducting an evaluation, she offered her expert opinion in four areas, his mental condition, the severity of the condition, progression, and prognosis. She concluded that Girardi suffers from dementia due to a progressive irreversible neurodegenerative disorder. So this came up and was a huge topic of examination. In 2021, she first concluded that the likely cause of his dementia was Alzheimer's. Later, she changed her diagnosis to dementia, ruled out Alzheimer's, because she was able to get him an amyloid PET scan, and it showed that there was no amyloid plaque in his brain. Instead, she concluded that it's most likely that he has hippocampal sclerosis of the elderly, or what is referred to now as limbic predominant age-related TDP43, and the abbreviation is LATE. So that's the form of dementia she believes he has. It's called LATE. What you do to diagnose that, among many other things, one of the things you can do is put a dye. It's usually during an autopsy, you put a dye into the brain and you test the level of the protein that is in the brain. And that's how you can tell. But you, yeah, usually it's done after death, postmortem. She also concluded that there was an atrophy or volume loss of Girardi's hippocampi and that it was extreme. She said that he has a loss of short-term memory and perpetual re- repetition of the same stories, and that is explained by the severe atrophy of his hippocampi. His loss of insight, confabulation, repetitive behaviors, so he would call clients and write notes, suggests a formal a frontal lobe component to his memory disorder. She rated him a 2, so moderate, on the clinical dementia rating scale. She made this conclusion based on her most recent examination of Girardi's, so the one in May 2023. She also did recent neurological testing and information regarding Girardi's day-to-day functioning from his caregiver at his facility. She gave him a 2 because she found that he has severe impairment in memory, is disoriented to time and place, has significant impairment in problem-solving and judgment. He 
no longer drives by himself. He's unable to perform outside activities, perform simple home activities and hobbies, and needs some help with dressing and toileting, mostly for hygienic reasons. She believes that his dementia began before the car accident in 2017. However, the concussion accelerated deterioration, and she thinks the dementia has remained on a slow progression from 2021 forward. Her prognosis for him was poor. She said there's currently no disease-modifying treatment, therefore dementia will continue to worsen. So these are from my notes. Hopefully this isn't too dense and technical. I took 22 pages of notes. I'm not going to read them all, but she testified that her evaluation for dementia commonly includes talking to the patient, talking to other friends and families, and she calls these reliable collateral informants, looking at studies, doing her own analysis, doing her own lab testing, and conducting neuroimaging. So I thought it would be interesting to summarize the reliable collateral informant statements that she reviewed. For some of them, she reviewed them herself. For others, it was other treating doctors who interviewed them and she reviewed them. Same with the lab testing. So she did some of her own lab testing, but for a lot of it, she was looking at the results that other treating doctors did. So like the doctor in 2017 after the accident, his own personal physician, she looked at those things. One of the people that she interviewed was Tom's daughter. And on cross-examination, they grilled her as to whether or not they that she knew that Tom and the daughter had been estranged until 2021. And they were like, how can you rely on her statements about his cognitive decline or his day-to-day functioning declining if she was not around him for years and years? So that was a big, big topic. But it's not as effective as having someone that's been married to him for 20-something years. Yeah. Did anybody interview Erica at all? Was there any evidence of that? Nope. And that was something that I posted about on our Instagram about how I found it really troubling to me that she didn't give a statement, at least to the doctor. And I understand there's the the privilege for testimony, but this isn't testimony. This is a statement to a doctor. Like if I was experiencing a medical issue and we went to the ER, it's like you talking to the doctor and telling them what you experienced or saw that happened to me. Yeah. So, If I were the prosecution, I would be foaming at the mouth if she did that. And then if I were the defense, I'd be like, I don't think anyone's going to find you credible. So it's probably not helpful. Yeah. It's just sad because she probably knows the most. She can't keep a single story straight. No. Who knows? Maybe the defense did interview her and then found so many inconsistencies that they decided not to use it or give it to their experts to review. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. But some of the ones we do have and... If you want to read this first one, we do have statements that were put in, and some of these people ended up testifying at the hearings. I mean, yeah. Okay, so there was a friend, an attorney, who stated in March 2020 that Girardi, he encountered Girardi during a random encounter at the federal courthouse, and that Girardi was confused, and he said that they were longtime friends, and that he was entering the federal building when a security officer stopped him and asked him if he knew Girardi, who was also at the federal building, and that the officer stated, the man appears lost. He's looking for a Department 32. He said that Girardi didn't appear to recognize him, and that after he identified himself, Girardi asked him where Department 32 was located, and that the attorney friend knew that it was in the state courthouse across the street, and that even that Girardi didn't appear to know that, even though he had appeared countless times in the state courthouse. He said more, but it was redacted. So I just want to note that there was more that was stated, but that's all he could share. That's all that we could see publicly. But again, that's still 
during the time that he has incentive to appear confused. So another statement was Kim Corey, which was his legal assistant. She's worked for him for many years. It says Girardi would forget which cases he had settled and would ask for updates on closed cases. He would dictate the same letter or declaration to Corey repeatedly for the same case. Having no memory, he had just done so. Girardi eventually stopped recognizing clients when they called, even when he was previously familiar with a client. Corey and others had to prepare Girardi before he took calls. Girardi would repeatedly ask Corey for the same files, sometimes minutes after he had just made the very same request. He would ask Corey for the phone number for a particular person he knew, but then return a few minutes later asking who the person was. Even after his firm closed, Girardi would call Corey to ask for help with dictations and work. That would That's actually horrible. Like the firm closes and he still calls and is like, can you dictate this for me? In January 2021, a month after the firm had effectively closed, Girardi called Corey on a Friday and said, I hope you are having a great day off. I will see you Monday. So the next one was a housekeeper. She testified that in 2021, she expanded her role from his housekeeper to his daytime caregiver. And she said his inability to function on his own was evident. An example she gave was that he could make a small meal or a sandwich a year earlier, but by 2021, he was incapable of even completing that simple task. People who complain about their husbands and (laughs) who are perfectly confident and can't seem to make a meal for themselves. She said that Girardi could stand and dress himself, but that she had to remind him to do those things. She said she kept track of his medical appointments because Girardi couldn't do that, and that he could previously get around aided by his driver, but by 2021, that she had to accompany him to ensure that he arrived as a, at his appointments to prevent him from wandering off. She said that while she was sitting in the waiting room for one appointment, that he left the building through the back exit and that fortunately she convinced him to provide his location and not to move until she arrived. I'm assuming she called his cell phone. So she gives, she actually gives a lot of testimony. And again, it's redacted here, but she testified in court. And I actually think she is a better person than Erica. I think she's golden for them because she worked for him for, I think, over a decade. And if anyone knows what's going on, it's the housekeeper. She would have personal knowledge of his demeanor both before and after his alleged cognitive decline and would have intimate personal knowledge of all of these things. So I I agree that that's a much better witness for the defense. As we know, Erica wasn't making Girardi sandwiches or helping him get dressed. I mean, she wanted nothing to do with him. Yeah. Even when they were married. So then it was the program coordinator for his care facility. She said that she's interacted with him since June 2022. He, like we mentioned before, has legal pads and loose paper. He becomes very upset if he feels that his legal work has been disturbed. He's in a cycle where every day he mimics a lawyer representing clients, even though he is no longer an attorney and is living at the facility. He will ask staff to call his car to take him to his law office. The staff placates Girardi by assuring him that the car has been called and it's on the way until Girardi eventually forgets about his request. That's horrible. I mean, I have ADHD and my husband does that to me all the time. We're in the store and I'm oh, I want that and that. And he's, let's get it on the way out. Like I'm a little kid. It works a lot. Yeah. Since his arrival, she's noticed drastic decline in his self-care. He no longer changes his clothes regularly and often wears the same clothes on multiple days. Even with prompting to change, Girardi will remove dirty clothing from the hamper and wear them again. Girardi's bathroom must be regularly cleaned since Girardi started using a towel to clean himself after bowel movements. Ew. Yeah. 
She also confirmed during a second interview that he now needs someone to stand outside the shower and provide him with prompts like reminders to use soap and reminders to brush his teeth every morning. So then during Dr. Chu's testimony, she also showed brain scans from 2017 to 2021 and then from 2021 to 2023 that showed a clear decrease in brain matter, especially in the hippocampi. So I'm no doctor, but I was there and I saw the brain scans and you can very clearly see things are shrinking. And that's, to me, the most compelling evidence because totally. that is objective data. So she but also I'm, touched I'm on... such the, a conspiracy theorist. Why were there brain scans in 2017? The car accident. So ostensibly, he had a brain scan in 2017, and they found that. And I'm sure the records were verified by the prosecutors before they were admitted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's So, so far, that's the best evidence. Yeah. So she also touched on the suspicious timing. So this is what we were talking about earlier that I said we would talk about later. So she touched on the suspicious timing of when this all came to be. And she said that social support can help. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. People with dementia maintain their status. People around them can help them, and it makes them seem like they're okay. But when you lose your social support, like he did with Erica divorcing him in November 2020, she mentioned this, and the housekeeper leaving in early 2021, the decline is easier to see. Another example she gave is Tom being able to still work. And she said because of the support he still received, like an associate doing most of the heavy lifting on a memo or a brief, and he was just giving final sign-off, it was easier for him to pretend to get by. She also noted that when you start with a high cognitive reserve, it can make up for a decline, but only so much and for so long. So his high intelligence and all that, like, yes, it can make it seem like he's okay, but at some point you're going to notice that he's not well. 
The most important thing that she said to me is that a person with late dementia, the type that she thinks he has, can follow conversations, can pay attention, can still use language in real time, but it is difficult to recall conversations that he had. She testified that crystallized intelligence can be unaffected by dementia. I had to look up what crystallized intelligence is, and it's based on facts and rooted in experience. As we age and accumulate new knowledge and understanding, crystallized intelligence becomes stronger. Fluid intelligence, however, is the opposite. It involves being able to think and reason abstractly and solve problems. This ability is considered independent of learning, experience, and education. It tends to decline during late adulthood. So certain cognitive skills associated with fluid intelligence also decline as people reach later adulthood. Okay, so if he has crystallized intelligence and he's been a very successful practicing lawyer for longer than I've been alive... And he has all of this empirical knowledge, which is based on facts and experience, which would be crystallized intelligence. Wouldn't he be able to participate in his defense? I think this is what you and I argued about before. I mean, yeah, that's what counsel was trying to argue on cross-examination of her. They, I think in their interviews with him, found that he could still remember who worked on specific cases and which accounts belonged to certain clients. And she said, that doesn't surprise me. That's that's his crystallized information. Sounds like he's competent to stand trial to me. But he doesn't have remote memory. So in the moment, can he... But that's, that's why I, I was asking you what the standard was. And that's why we reviewed it, though. Just because he can access that information and give testimony doesn't mean that he can assist his counsel in properly defending him and knows what's going on in the proceedings. So yeah, we can extract the information from him to find him guilty, but does that mean that it's fair and that due process is being served? You know, I, if he you, can't help his yeah. counsel defend him properly because he can't engage in the immediate and can't recall things in the immediate and understand the proceedings against him, is that fair? Thought experiment. Because this is an interesting thing to talk about and the standard is nebulous. That's one of the problems with it. It's a case-by-case basis. There's no hard and fast rule. And it, this is fascinating because... Okay, let's say you're a criminal defense attorney. You have a client that comes to you and says, I've been charged with attempted theft and conspiracy to commit wire fraud or whatever. And that client can tell you what happened, tell you what occurred. Let's say they have long-term memory, but they don't have short-term memory. They can tell you their facts and circumstances of what led up to the crime, allowing you to create a defense, and they're able to do that accurately, but then they don't have short-term memory. Okay, here's where I see the problem, now that I'm talking about it out loud. <laughs> Say, for example, he was offered a plea deal. Yeah, that's exactly, that. that's yeah. what we talked about when we went over yeah. the... Yeah. Then he yeah. wouldn't be able to, you know, competently enter into the plea deal. Okay, now... Or, or if he yeah. wanted to testify... And he was like, get me on the stand. And it's like, do you understand what you're doing? Do you have the capacity to appreciate that you're waiving your Fifth Amendment right? I don't know. I mean, the frustrating thing is there's overwhelming evidence that he's absolutely guilty of this. (laughs) I know. That's what's frustrating. And that's why I hate being on the side where I do think he's incompetent. I know it's the unpopular side to be on. I mean, to be fair, you you observed the day of the proceedings where the defense was presenting all of their evidence. If you had been there the day before and observed the prosecution side, they always say in a trial, 
when you're on the defense, True. the worst your case is going to be is, you know, when the prosecution closes their evidence. It's not like what you're saying is in any way wrong. And the brain scans and the people that essentially probably don't have a lot of credibility issues with why they would be testifying on behalf of Girardi's incompetency, like the housekeeper, for example, that was a good example that you gave because she isn't involved in his law firm. She's no longer employed by him. And she's not in any way going to be implicated, we don't think, in any of his nefarious activities. She's pretty credible as a witness. But he does have to understand if he accepts a plea deal or something, what he's agreeing to, or if he's being confronted with evidence, what that evidence is. I, I'm still I'm still struggling with the fact that he's so convenient that this, this the timing is so just convenient. But the timing is convenient if you're looking at it from... 2020 to the present. The thing is, maybe this isn't Girardi. Maybe this is the web of people around him that knew he had dementia, kept this going. And their plan all along was once this house of cards finally comes crumbling down, we can just pin it all on Girardi and he has dementia and he won't be able to defend himself. Yeah. Have you ever experienced when you're around like an older partner and they're saying things that you think don't make sense? And you want to challenge them, but it feels disrespectful to, or there's this like air of respect and you don't just don't cross that line. I could see that having occurred with Tom where they're like, oh, it's the Tom Girardi. Like, but he's sounding all loopy, but like, oh, it's Tom. So, you know, we don't want to call him out because it's just like this air of, I don't know. I mean, I get what you're saying. And I think a young associate would have been terrified. I mean, obviously, and he got away with this when he was fully competent for a really long time totally so totally and i mean all of the stuff with the the you know bribing the california bar and being in charge of who became a judge in california and donating tons of money to political parties and all of this i get i get all of that and i get like a young associate would be afraid like who are you gonna do tell the what what were they gonna do go to the california bar ethics committee and be like oh hey you know because like the clients that were but getting people screwed, did did yeah people they did. did didn't get help so i mean i get what you're saying there and i mean to me it kind of seems like this web of people around him i mean when we did our rico episode for the civil rico case that's in federal court in california and we talked about all of the evidence there Cameron and those other people had a lot of incentive to keep this going to keep the money coming in and to keep propping Girardi up. So what they're saying here isn't necessarily untrue. He could have had dementia for a long time and the people around him had a lot of incentive to keep that going. And then, you know, it's a convenient out. Mm -hmm. It's very complicated. I do not envy the judge. So continuing on, we have so (laughs) much more. I know. So then the defense cross-examined Dr. Chu and tried to poke holes in her analysis. First, they were like, so if you have a small hippocampus, does that mean you have dementia every time? And she was like, no. You know, you do other things, like the interviews with the friends and family. And then they like pivoted and tried to poke holes in the interviews with the friends and family. Like the thing I mentioned about Tom Girardi's daughter being estranged from him, estranged mm-hmm. from him for so long. And um, I guess the witness at the care facility told prosecutors that she thought the timing was a little bit weird. And they were like, well, did you did you know that? And she's like, no, I didn't know that. But I, I used the interviews that I was provided and my own interviews with people. They also questioned, like, how can you 
say that his inability to make a sandwich is indicative of him having dementia when he never really made sandwiches for himself to begin with. He had a, a caretaker or his, his, his um, homemaker. What is it called? <laughs> housekeeper. Housekeeper. His housekeeper normally did that stuff. Like he wasn't making sandwiches for himself. So how could him not making sandwiches now be indicative of his day-to-day abilities being in decline? Right. These older men that have been waited on hand and foot their whole lives don't even have to have weaponized incompetence. They're just incompetent at this point <laughs> with some basic things. They also questioned if she did malingering testing and she didn't. She took Tom's word or took him for his word, but also made sure to corroborate it with friends and family and then the brain scans. The big thing was that they kept asking her is why didn't she review contextual evidence? So the evidence that they mentioned in their motion, things like the Real Housewives. Why didn't she watch the Real Housewives? Why didn't she look at his appearance on the podcast? Why didn't she look at him hosting the attorney panel to see how he was functioning in his day to day? And she said that wasn't part of the analysis she did. Lastly, and then this is what you talked about, was the issue on crystallized memory. So yeah, the prosecution found that he was still able to remember from operations. So they asked her if this was consistent. And she said it was not shocking because it's information he knew for a while. And it's a form of crystallized memory. Stacy Wood, a neuropsychologist who evaluated dozens of people for their competence to stand trial, testified she examined Girardi for over five days and concluded that he is not competent to stand trial and is not malingering because he suffers from a major neurocognitive disorder. One factor in her conclusion was that Girardi scored high on several cognitive tests specifically designed to evaluate someone's effort on the tests. Yeah, so she did some malingering testing. It was only there for a little bit of her testimony, but she did say he scored high on, again, on things that had to do with crystallized knowledge. And then he scored lower on things that tested episodic memory. It was during the defense expert testimony where Girardi had the quiet outburst. So on cross-examination, they challenged the expert's position by arguing that she didn't properly assess the evidence, that Girardi's malingering, and that his apparent swift decline in mental faculties coincided perfectly with the public allegations in December 2020 that he's perpetuating a massive fraud, which Ceci and I have discussed extensively. Prosecutor said, hypothetically, ma'am, if a defendant similarly situated as Mr. Girardi was able to successfully keep secret a multi, multi-million dollar fraud, would that be significant to you? And then he said, Your Honor, I just want the record to make clear that the defendant just said fuck you to me. That is a good cross-examination question for the expert. I mean, just hypothetically, ma'am, if a defendant similarly situated as Mr. Audi was able to successfully keep a multi-million dollar fraud secret, would that be significant to you? And then Girardi's quietly saying fuck you. Okay. Yeah, After but apparently mom- it oh, wasn't audible. After a moment of awkward silence, and as Girardi stared at him, the prosecutor continued, quote, and by counsel's lack of any objection, I take it that they heard it as well. And then he incorporated that into his next cross-examination question, which was, quote, is that, by the way, significant to you that he has an appreciation that I'm making accusations against him? Does that go to some of the factors that you considered, ma'am, in your report? She said it's certainly rude and inappropriate. You deserve our respect. But that's not my question. We heard a lot of evidence about where he's at mentally, but the fact that he's able to put two and two together that I'm talking about him and that he's able to respond to me 
like that, is that significant to you that he has an appreciation of what I'm saying and what he's being accused of? She responded, yes, but it also speaks to poor courtroom behavior. Or the fact that he's got nothing to lose because of the level of accusations that have been lodged against him, right? That I can't say. Spicy line of questioning. And I'm so mad. It was the day after I was there. You guys, I just want you to know the efforts Ceci made to observe this trial now that she's in L.A. <laughs> she braved L.A. traffic. Twice. Drove, twice. Drove all the way down there and sat through all these, you know, went through basically TSA to get in these proceedings, sat there, took 20 pages of notes, and we thank you for your service. But didn't get to go this spicy day. Oh, wow. So while cross-examining the okay, so while cross-examining the defense expert, this is Wood, the prosecutor brought up memos written by Girardi in 2020, as well as voicemails he left that showed, which the prosecutor said showed that Girardi was functioning at a normal level. In one memo dictated by Girardi to his assistant, he told the staffer they could no longer work from home. And they claimed that this was a level of awareness that contradicted the claim that Girardi was unaware of what was happening to him, but Wood disagreed, saying that someone with mild cognitive impairment and early-stage dementia could have dictated a memo like that. But after he was showed a memo, another memo, this one detailing the law firm's perilous financial state during the first year of the COVID pandemic, the neuropsychologist acknowledged, quote, it suggests a situational awareness but added that her focus was, quote, more contemporaneous. That is, her focus was more on Girardi's mental state now, not in 2020. And then the prosecutor suggested that if he was malingering in 2020, that could well mean he is malingering now. I really like these cross-examination questions. All right. And then Tom got some of the lay witnesses to testify at the hearing. And so this is from the recorder, because I wasn't there. And it's a little snippet. It says, wearing the same burgundy sweater and khaki pants sometimes stained from hemorrhoid accidents, walking into the wrong courthouse, writing on paper at an assisted living facility, thinking he is still a lawyer. This was the description of Tom Girardi portrayed by five lay witnesses who spoke Wednesday afternoon on the third day of a mental competency hearing. Here's another snippet from Courthouse News Service. The defense called a number of lay witnesses, including a longtime friend of Girardi's, Amber Ringler. That is someone I had not heard of before. Yeah. Who told the Long-time court that... Longtime friend of Girardi's? That's a woman? Amber Ringler. Googling her? Yeah, I want to see what she looks like. Who told the court that Girardi was having trouble recognizing people as early as 2015. By 2020, she said he had gone down... He had gone way downhill. She said he would sometimes have whole conversations with people, then ask her, who was that? Do you find her? I... Oh, she's pretty. I'm going to um, share my screen with you. I have her. The blonde woman? Yeah. Yeah, I just put it in the chat, the one I found. Do I need the tea for five ninety nine? Okay, so we just Googled who Amber is, and we don't have any information on her, but Dana Wilkie's Patreon post really popped up in the Google search. And it says, Tom Girardi rumored travel agent girlfriend sent Anon to me. And it has her photo. It's the same photo you found. Yeah. Do I need to pay $6? Oh, wait, here. I found her LinkedIn. She's a travel agent. So that checks out. Yep. And she looks very beautiful in her LinkedIn picture as well. She definitely looks like Tom's type, for sure. But what is the rumor? It's probably just going to be that, oh, yeah, she testified on his behalf. Okay. And then the director of the memory care unit also testified and said she believes Tom Girardi is not faking his condition. And as a reminder, she's the one that prosecutors said thought that the timing was suspicious. So then when she got on the stand, she's saying that she still thinks... 
he's not faking it. So even though she made the statement about the timing being curious or suspicious, she still thinks he is in mental decline. She also said she doesn't think Tom recognizes his own lawyers. He simply looks at them with a blank stare like there's nothing there. I'll just add, like, seeing Tom was very surreal, and he does look different. I mean, when researching the for this episode today, I saw old pictures of him from, you know, from the show and what he looked like on the show, and he just looks so different. It's like his eyes are sunken in. They're very set back. He has really deep creases on his brow, like he's constantly furrowing them and thinking. It does not look like he's there. It's really bizarre. And yes, yeah. I'm sure he can have moments where he's focusing and jumps in and has attention, but it's it's creepy. Yeah. However, watching The Housewife and The Hustler and Girardi's appearances on there, part of the reason that Girardi was such a powerful trial attorney and was also so compelling as he was perpetuating this fraud, he comes across as this really nice guy. Even when he was lying to his former clients that he was stealing from and calling him on the phone, he was like, man, I'm a good guy. He really was so cunning at being able to fake that, that I'm struggling so much thinking that he's not faking it at least partially now. But I just don't understand how you can fake a physical appearance. Like unless I just, I... Well, here's another example. When a high profile person that's attractive gets arrested and gets put in jail and does not have access to their normal routine is under extreme stress. They tend to look totally different by the time they go to trial than when they got arrested. And all of those environmental factors are extremely relevant to how he looks and appears so it's really hasn't been arrested he's in a care facility he's in a care facility that's an example of just how someone's environment and circumstances can change he was living in a mansion in pasadena and now he's in a care facility he doesn't have the respect and admiration of any of his colleagues the entire world knows about your misdeeds that is going to affect you physically And that's going to come across in the way you appear. So some of this could be some true dementia. And then some of his physical appearance, it's stress. And it's like he's trapped. There's no way out. The evidence against him is overwhelming. The only way to avoid a conviction at this point, really, is to be found incompetent. He has nothing to look forward to in his future, either way. He spent his entire career decades being this venerated, celebrated trial lawyer, And now he's not. That can affect his appearance, too. Sure. But being there and seeing him, I still, I strongly believe he's not there. I mean, I'd disassociate, too, if I were. It's, I don't know. Yeah. I I totally get what you're saying. And I think that's really important for people to realize that talking about it in the abstract, like I am, is different than having a actual personal observation of this person like Ceci did. I am still able to think about him in the abstract, whereas you have firsthand personal knowledge of his appearance. There's a big difference in how you see things when you have empirical data and when you don't. Yeah. And I'll just add, I'm not the only one who felt that way at the hearing. Like there were people who aren't as close to Bravo, like independent reporters there who follow the law very closely on what's going on. And they agree. They're like, these hearings are pointless. He's so out of it. This is just, just end it. Like just, you know, 
it. So I just think we can't let our strong desire for him to be found guilty and serve his time. We just can't let it cloud the evidence or the fact that he might be suffering from dementia. Like, yeah, yeah. I want him. I want him to be found guilty. I want him to serve time, and I want the victims to be whole. I mean, of course, I've been there. I saw it, but it's also like you know they're they're working to get them their funds back, which is great. I'm very happy for that. It's, I mean, of course, that's not enough to repay them for everything that they've gone through. But at least there's that. It's going to take a long time to repair the trust in the legal system in that state. And now it's really frustrating for California attorneys, I'm sure, because the people that have been ethical and doing things right the whole time are now under much more scrutiny and having to go through a lot more things. And it's not because of anything they did. It's because of what Girardi did. There is a very famous case of a mobster called Vincent the Chin Gigante, who avoided prison for decades. He wandered Greenwich Village's streets in a ratty bathrobe and slippers as part of an elaborate feigned mental illness. He was dubbed the odd father for his bizarre behavior. The Genovese crime family head had a lengthy string of victories over prosecutors, finally admitted his insanity ruse in a 2003 hearing. I mean, this went on for decades. If anyone watched The Sopranos, you know that there was a similar storyline, and that was based on this real-life Vincent Gigante. He built a vast network of bookmaking and loan sharking rings from extortions of garbage, shipping, trucking, and construction companies, seeking labor contracts from carpenters, teamsters, unions, including those at the Javits Center, which, by the way, wasn't that where BravoCon was last year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well as protection payoffs, blah, blah, blah. So all the stuff that you saw on The Sopranos, a lot of it was based on this real-life mobster and the things that he did. He was super reclusive, difficult to capture on wiretaps. He almost never left his house unoccupied because he knew that FBI agents would sneak in and try to plant a bug. And Genovese members were not allowed to mention his name in conversations or phone calls. And when they had to mention him, they pointed to their chins or made the letter C with their fingers. I'm not going to go into all the details of all the mob stuff, but it's pretty fascinating. There was another storyline on The Sopranos where Tony Soprano, his dad, was held out to be the head of the crime family, but it was actually Tony running things. And that was the same here. They alleged another person was actually the head when it was really Gigante. So on May 30th, 1990, he was indicted along with four members of the New York crime families for conspiring to rig bids and exert payoffs, a multi-million dollar contracts with the New York City Housing Authority to install windows. And Gigante attended his arraignment in pajamas in a bathrobe. And due to his defense stating that he was mentally and physically impaired, legal battles ensued for seven years over his competence to stand trial. And didn't Girardi show up in one of the first hearings in slippers? Yeah, I, like I don't them. think they were that bad, though. I think people <laughs> made it sound worse than it was. He denied he was okay. a gangster. And he wandered the streets in nightclothes, muttering incoherently. And he had relatives, including a brother who is a Roman Catholic priest, testify that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and Alzheimer's disease. He also turned his claim of mental illness, first used to escape trial in a 1970 police bribery case, into a full-time strategy, behaving weirdly in public and checking into psychiatric clinics whenever the FBI turned up the heat. There were comic moments. In one instance, agents served a subpoena, Agents serving a subpoena found Gigante standing naked in the shower holding an umbrella. Another time, 
Upon spotting agents watching him, he fell to the sidewalk and prayed. According to a book written by Larry McShane called The Life and Crimes of Mafia Boss Vincent Gigante, quote, Gigante walked the streets dressed almost like a homeless man, ratty bathrobe, funky cap and slippers. The outfit was accompanied by bizarre behavior that ranged from chatting with parking meters to pissing on the street. It was an act worthy of Pacino or De Niro and kept the chin out of jail for nearly three decades. If there was an Oscar for best performance running a mob family, he would have retired the award. So at sanity hearings in March 1996, a former underboss of the Gambino crime family became a cooperating witness in 1991. And he testified that Gigante was lucid at top level mafia meetings and that he had told other gangsters that his eccentric behavior was a pretense. Gigante's lawyers also got testimony and reports from psychiatrists that from 1969 to 1995, Gigante had been confined 28 times in hospitals for treatment of hallucinations and that he suffered from dementia rooted in organic, in organic brain damage. If anyone is a fan of the reality show Mob Wives, it was Sammy the Bull Gravano, the former underboss of the Gambino crime family, who was the one of the cooperating witnesses in 19 that testified against him and as to use the mob wives terminology became a rat. So at one point, the trial turned into a battle with testimony from Peter Chiotto, a 300 pound mobster who had survived a gangland execution only because his fat stopped a dozen bullets. I just included that because I've never heard of it before. None of that swayed the jurors who convicted Gigante of racketeering, extortion, and plotting the murder, which was never carried out, of ex-mob associate Peter Savino. Quote, defendant has been consistently feigning insanity for many years and is still doing so in a shrewd attempt to avoid punishment for his crimes, U.S. District Judge Jack Weinstein said in sentencing Gigante to 12 years in prison. He is a shadow of his former self, an old man finally brought to bay in his declining years after decades of vicious criminal tyranny. So federal prosecutor had planned to play tapes showing him fully coherent, careful, and intelligent running crime operations from prison. Faced with this evidence, Gigante pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice on April 7, 2003. After nearly a quarter century of public craziness, Gigante calmly pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice for his deception. He then chatted amicably with his son, shook hands with defense lawyers, and even laughed at one point. I just wanted to bring that up because it's a really famous example I'm not saying that's what Girardi is doing. I'm saying there is someone that successfully managed to evade prosecution for a very long time by doing these crazy things like talking to parking meters and holding an umbrella in the shower. And some of it is just entertaining and funny. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a different time, though. You know, like, yes, he had the psychiatrist say that he was admitted to the hospital, but like, it's different from actually doing an examination and like having brain scans and stuff. It was not the technology we have today, but it was the 90s and they did have brain scans that they entered into evidence. But he remember he had been a boxer. So yeah, I just I don't I don't know if it's that comparable. But yeah, it is interesting. What I'm saying is it's not insane to think that someone would go to these links to avoid prosecution because it's been done before. So Ceci, what's the difference between competency to stand trial and the insanity defense? All right. So the difference between competency to stand trial and the insanity defense is at what time or in what moment you are trying to determine whether someone is in mental decline. So competency hinges on a defendant's current mental state at the time of trial. So it's a low level standard like we talked about. And the insanity defense has nothing to do with the defendant's current mental status. It's the time of the offense. 
Yeah. So to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, a judge or jury must evaluate a criminal defendant's state of mind when they were committing whatever crime it was. And Sissy, what's the federal definition for or the federal standard for insanity? It's as a result of a severe mental disease or defect, the defendant was unable to appreciate the nature and quality of the wrongfulness of his acts. The burden of proof is on the defendant to prove insanity by clear and convincing evidence. Each state and the District of Columbia have their own statute setting out the standard for determining whether a defendant is legally insane and therefore not responsible at the time the crime was committed. In general, the standards fall into two categories. About half the states follow the McNaughton rule based on a 1843 British case of Daniel McNaughton, a deranged woodcutter who attempted to assassinate the prime minister. He was acquitted, and the resulting standard is still used in 26 states in the United States. A defendant may be found not guilty by reason of insanity if, at the time of committing the act, he or she was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he or she was doing, and that if they did know it, that they didn't know what they were doing was wrong. This is commonly referred to as the right-wrong test. Then 22 jurisdictions use some variation of the model standard set out by the American Law Institute, and under that rule, a defendant is not held criminally responsible if, at the time of his conduct, as a result of mental disease or defect, he or she lacks substantial capacity to either appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or to conform conduct to the requirements of the law. This one is considered to be less restrictive than the McNaughton rule. And to be clear, this has nothing to do with Girardi. It's fascinating to me. So three states don't allow the insanity defense at all, and that's Montana, Idaho, and Utah. There's a very famous insanity defense case that was successful. Ceci, how old were you in 1993? You're three. Okay, I was 13. So I remember the Lorena Bobbitt case very well. You heard of this? You've never heard? Okay, so Lorena Bobbitt made national headlines when she cut off her husband's penis with a kitchen knife in 1993. 24-year-old Lorena testified that she attacked her husband after he came home drunk, and he raped her. She went to the kitchen to get a glass of water, spotted the kitchen knife, and was overcome from years of abuse, and she doesn't remember anything after that. She was facing up to 20 years for malicious wounding and was found not guilty due to insanity. She was ordered to undergo a 45-day evaluation period at a state hospital, and then released. Her husband, John Wayne Bobbitt, had his penis reattached in a 10-hour surgery, and he went on to have a successful porn career. And they were able to perform the surgery because Lorena Bobbitt threw it out of the window of her car because she couldn't drive it while holding it, and then she told the police where it was. And in the early morning hours, the police went digging through the roadside grass, found it, and they put it on ice in a big bite hot dog box from the nearby 7-Eleven and rushed it to the hospital. That is crazy. So do you want to read the next paragraph? Before Lorena was tried for malicious wounding, her husband was charged with marital sexual assault. At the time, marital rape only recently had be been made a crime in all 50 states and was nearly impossible to prove in Virginia. There was a string of witnesses at her trial who testified that they had seen bruises on her arms and neck and she had called 911 repeatedly and that John had bragged to friends about forcing his wife to have sex. In the years since the trial, he was arrested several times and served jail time for violence against two different women. He denied the allegations. So there is a documentary, and it is on, I believe, Amazon. Is it just it Jordan Peele? So if you're interested in this case, you can watch that. Multiple serial killers have attempted the insanity defense and failed. For example, John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer. And then also, if you're interested in this sort of thing, listen to episode of 452 
multiple serial killers have attempted the insanity defense and failed. John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, for example. If you're interested in this sort of thing, go listen to episode 452 of This American Life. There is a brilliant interview with a lawyer who was defending a criminal defendant that a state was trying to execute, and he was absolutely nuts, and it involves a chicken playing tic-tac-toe, and it's a, it's just brilliant legal thinking as far as demonstrative evidence for a jury. Well, I had no idea when we started this episode about Girardi that we would end up talking about Lorena Bobbitt, but I went down one of my rabbit holes, and here we are. Yep, yep, yep. All right, let's close this out. All right, so this is editing, Sessie. I'm inserting this the night before we release it, and I'm looking at the docket right now to see what's happened since the hearings. So the day that Tom had those five lay witnesses testify, that was the last day of the competency hearings. And then the court ordered a briefing schedule. They said that the government, 30 days after receipt of final transcripts of the proceedings, so the hearings, has to file their opening brief on competency. Then opposition files theirs three weeks after opening briefs and then a reply two weeks after that. So both sides ordered transcripts on October 2nd, 30 days after that. So the government's opening brief as to why the why Tom Girardi should be found competent to stand trial. So that'll be due around the beginning of November. So we'll see the first week of November. Then the opposition, like I said, is three weeks after that. So then that takes to the second to last week in November. And then two weeks after that, the reply gets filed. So that takes us into mid-December. And then the court will probably take the holiday. So I have a feeling we're not going to get a decision on whether Tom Girardi is competent to stand trial until the end of the year at the earliest and if not then at the beginning of next year so no one hold your breath (laughs) it's gonna be a while and i mean things like this take time so we'll keep our eye on the docket if he is found competent to stand trial then the trial will proceed and we will be covering that so be on the lookout and also if he's found incompetent like we mentioned he still has other civil proceedings going on. There's still the bankruptcy as well and the lawsuits throughout the country against him. So we will still be covering those as well. But thanks, legal team. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network.